0: Tonight we begin at Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, and the plan is to complete the book of Philippians tonight. I don't think we'll have much trouble getting to the end of the chapter, although it'll take just a little bit of explaining because in some ways the first verse of chapter 4 should have been the last verse of chapter 3. I want to remind you that the chapter divisions that we find in the Bible are somewhat artificial. Paul didn't write in chapter and verse. Uh, Mark, Luke, John, you know, any of the New Testament or the Old Testament writers, for that matter, they did not write in chapter and verse. They wrote in what we would just consider to be paragraphs. And later on, uh, the Bible was divided up into chapter and verse. I think appropriately so. I think it helps us to find our way around the Bible. But not every place where they made a chapter division was particularly wise or inspired by God. And really, the first verse of Philippians chapter 4 really does belong more to Philippians chapter 3, where at the end of chapter 3, it was really painting this marvelous picture of our citizenship in heaven, how believers have this wonderful connection with heaven, as if that's where their true identity, that's where their true connection lies, and they're really visiting this earth as uh, aliens, as pilgrims, as strangers, as much as someone would visit a foreign country. And certainly you're there in the foreign country and you understand the people in the foreign country and you want to uh, be sensitive to the customs and the, the ideas of the foreign country. But at the same time, your heart very much belongs to your native land, which for believers, that native land is heaven because that's where their citizenship is. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3, he really uh, highlights the idea of our connection with heaven by focusing on this great transformation that will take place in the life of believers when they enjoy this tremendous resurrection from the dead. Uh, So bringing it to a conclusion, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, uh, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crowned, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved, In other words, because of the great citizenship in heaven that we have, because of this promise of resurrection, therefore, because of those things, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. You know, we can only stand fast keeping these heavenly realities in mind. And I know it's said sometimes of uh, Christians uh, that they are of so, um, they're, they're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression of speech before. Actually, I think that that's almost impossible to be in that condition. That if you are truly heavenly minded, you will be of tremendous earthly good. And God wanted them to relate right here, the the Philippians, uh, their heavenly hope, both with their citizenship in heaven and then their ultimate destiny in heaven to give them the, the moral and the spiritual strength to stand fast in the Lord right where they were at the present time. I also find it interesting in verse 1 that Paul uses this phrase, my joy and crown. The ancient Greek word that Paul used for crown there was the crown that was given to an athlete that won the race. It was a crown of achievement, known as a Stephanos, not the crown that was given to a king, which was known in the ancient Greek language as a diadema. The, The Philippians as they would stand fast in the Lord. They were a trophy of the Apostle Paul. People could say, look at the effectiveness of Paul's ministry because the Philippians are standing fast in the Lord. They were indeed to him then a joy and a crown. So that sort of wraps up the final thought from the end of Philippians chapter 3. Now, coming into verse 2 here of chapter 4, Paul sort of turns the focus, as you can see. Would have been a better breaking place for the chapters as he starts here in verse 2. I implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Well, what do we know about these two people, Euodia and Syntyche? Well, we know that they're women because they're female names. They're feminine names. We also know that they were involved in some sort of quarrel in the Philippian church. You have two Philippian Christians, two members of the Philippian church, so to speak, and they're fighting with one another. And I love what Paul tells them. You see, instead of taking sides, instead of trying to solve their problem, what does Paul simply tell them to do? He says, listen, you tell them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Euodia, don't take Syntyche's mind and don't keep your own mind. Syntyche, don't take Euodia 's mind and don't keep your own mind. Why don't you come together in the common mind of Jesus Christ? You see, whatever their argument was about, and as you read a verse like this, and it's sort of mysterious do you, almost go on and on, you know, what, what it was that they were fighting about. But whatever their dispute was about, Euodia and Syntyche had forgotten that they had a greater common ground in Jesus Christ. You see, they forgot that everything else was less important than that common ground. And sometimes I think that uh, fighting Christians just need to be told this. They just need to be told, sometimes like children, listen, just get along. Just just stop insisting on your own way. Just stop insisting upon your own opinion. Can't you find some way to just get along with one another? To recognize that you have a common bond between yourselves, that common bond of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which eclipses any of the differences that you might have. Now, of course, you'll come to know this, if you haven't known it already, uh, when you're a parent and you have children, Especially when you have more than one child. Because when you have more than one child, they're going to fight together, right? They're going to come into arguments. They're going to come in in, uh, disputes and sort of, you know, bicker and go back and forth and quarrels one with another. And it's very frustrating to parents. Because the parents can always see that the things that the children are fighting over are, first of all, utterly inconsequential. They don't matter at all. You know he took this from me, or he got more of this than I, or the other, all and on. it's just the smallest, pettiest things, and I think that God must think exactly the same way when He looks down upon believers quarreling. And the second thing is, and this is very frustrating for parents when they see their children fighting. you, who are not parents you just wait, your day is coming, and you'll see this that that you'll see the parents just saying, listen you're you're in the same family, Does't that count for something?" This is your brother. He's not just another person off the street. This is your sister. She's not just a a neighbor kid, you know, several blocks away living from you. You're in the same family. Shouldn't you get along just because you're in the same family? Now, what's interesting about that is that logic makes complete sense to a parent. It makes no sense to a child. It's unfathomable logic to a child. A child sees nothing compelling in that, but a parent sees it as being perfectly wise. Now, you know, I see some of this as Paul being a parent and Iodia and Syntyche to be the children in this situation. And he as a parent just says to these quarreling children, listen, you just have the same mind in the Lord. Quit your fighting and get along. Now he goes on here, verse 3. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now this is very interesting. He says, I urge you also true companion. So in verse 2, we had two women, right? Iodia and Syntyche. And then now in verse 3, we have a mysterious person named the true companion. We don't know exactly who it was that Paul was referring to this. Whoever it was, Paul wanted their help. Paul wanted the true companion to help these women who had labored with him in the gospel. And how was he going to help them? He was going to help them by getting them to reconcile and come to one mind and one heart in the Lord. I think it's a very telling phrase because it shows us something else about Iodia and Syntyche. It shows us that they were faithful workers with Paul in the work of the gospel. Did you see how he described those women in verse 3? He called them those who labored with him in the gospel. Wouldn't you love it if Paul wrote that about you? So the good news is, Yodia and Syntyche, your names are in God's eternal book that will stand for all ages. And you're in there as a couple of women who were quarreling. That's the bad news. The good news is you're also described as faithful fellow laborers with Paul in the gospel. I want you to notice something here. This shows us something. Yodia and Syntyche were both faithful workers with Paul in the work of the gospel yet they still had a falling out with each other. How could that be? They're both serving the Lord. Shouldn't that mean they get along perfectly one with another? Not necessarily, right? And sometimes this is a strong word that needs to be spoken, especially to those who are faithful laborers in the gospel. Hey, get along with one another. You know, have a love for one another. Paul knew that this very unfortunate dispute needed to be cleared up. And so he says, these women were faithful laborers with me, so please, true companion, help them to get along. But notice who else was a faithful laborer, verse 3, with Clement also. Now, that's an interesting name, because there was a very notable Clement in the early church who was the leader of the church in Rome, and who wrote two preserved letters to the church at Corinth? Some of the earliest Christian writings that we have outside of the New Testament are by a man named Clement, who wrote to his church, in, who wrote to the church in Corinth. But we have no idea if that was the same Clement as who's mentioned here in Philippi. And actually, I think it's impossible to know because it was a common name in the ancient Roman world. There's just no way to know whether or not it was the same person. i got to say, though, how would you like to have your name mentioned by God? Iodia and Syntyche, their whole life in ministry was basically summed up in one sentence. They fought. They disputed with one another. Whereas Clement, his life in ministry was summed up by the way of saying that he was one of Paul's fellow workers with the gospel. That would be my preference, to be more like Clement than like Eodia and Syntyche. But then there were others too, as he says at the end of verse 3, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, coming into verse 4, I think he's still carrying on with the same train of thought. You know, he's thinking of this conflict that existed among some of the members of the church at Philippi. By the way, we do remember this, that we saw the repeated calls to unity as we've studied this book of this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. Several times through the book, he gave them that charge to be unified, to be together, uh, all on the same page together in the gospel. So now, continuing on, he says, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, again, this notable theme of joy throughout the letter to the Philippians is all the more remarkable when we remember where the letter was written from. It was written from a Roman prison. And many times in the book of Philippians, chapter 1 verse 4, chapter 1 verse 18, chapter 1 verse 25, chapter 2 verse 2, chapter 2 verse 16, chapter 2 verse 17, chapter 2 verse 18, chapter 2 verse 28, chapter 3 verse 1, chapter 3 verse 3, chapter 4 verse 1, and here in chapter 4 verse 4, he's giving some kind of reference to joy or rejoicing over and over again in this letter. And I think it's interesting that he brings in this exhortation to rejoice again just after addressing Eodia and Syntyche. I like what Spurgeon said about this. That great English preacher said this. He said, I'm glad that we don't know what the quarrel was about. I'm usually thankful for ignorance on such subjects. But as a cure for disagreements, the apostle says, rejoice in the Lord always. People who are very happy especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or to take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they're not easily distracted by the little troubles which naturally rise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Joy in the Lord is the cure for all arguments. Isn't that true? I mean, if people would just have more joy in the Lord, there would be less conflict and less disputing among Christians. You don't find people saying, you know, oh, I'm just so happy in Jesus that I can't get over how my brother or sister has wronged me. The phrase just doesn't go together, does it? It just doesn't fit. And so really, joy in the Lord is a great prescription to unity in the body of Christ. But Paul was very passionate here in the way that he described that Christians should have joy. He says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul's joy wasn't based in a sunny optimism or in a positive mental attitude as much as it was in the confidence that God was in control. It really was what we would call a joy in the Lord. And how good God is, how good God is to give us commands like this. You know, God commands you right now tonight. Now you be happy. Isn't that a wonderful command? You know, God could command you many worse, many more grievous things than that, but he commands you tonight, you be happy in me. You rejoice in me. That's God's joy for us. It's his heart for us. Now, when we have this kind of joy, it shows itself in our character. Look now at verse 5, as Paul sort of piles exhortation upon exhortation. Verse 5, he says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, it's a very interesting ancient Greek word that Paul translates here, or excuse me, that we translate, that Paul wrote uh, as gentleness right here. Other translations of the Bible use that same ancient Greek word and render it like this. Patience, softness, the patient mind, modesty, forbearance, the forbearing spirit, or magnanimity. You see, it's sort of the idea of someone who has a very generous, open heart, a a gentle heart towards other people. I think a good example of this kind of quality, one of the best ones I can think in the Bible, is you remember when Jesus had brought before him the woman who was taken in adultery. Now, do you know how Jesus showed that wise, loving gentleness towards her? I think exactly that as the quality that, that Paul is mentioning right here. It's sort of the idea of willingness to um, to get along, willingness to to have an open heart towards one another. It, th- this word describes the heart of a person who will let the Lord fight his battles. The, the kind of person who knows that scripture that says, "Vengeance is mine," says the Lord. It describes the kind of person. Is willing to let go of their anxieties and all the things that cause them stress because that they know that the Lord will take up their cause. I mean, think about the things that cause you stress in your life. Aren't a lot of those stressful things just ways that you're taking problems unto yourself instead of the Lord, in let, letting the Lord, I should say, handle those problems? So he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. We're, show, we're to show this gentleness to all men, not just to the ones that you please. Let it be seen by everybody. Why? Look at the end of verse 5. Because the Lord is at hand. You see, when we live with the awareness of Jesus' soon return, it makes it all the easier to rejoice in the Lord and to show gentleness uh, at all, to all men. We know that Jesus is going to settle every wrong. I don't have to fight for all my rights. I don't have to be offended at every slight. The Lord's at hand. The time's too short to mess around with things like that. So Paul... Continues on, verse 6, again, sort of piling exhortation upon exhortation. Verse 6, you you almost get the idea as Paul's maybe running out of paper, you know, as he writes on the parchment here, that he's thinking, all right, let me just give some quick, short, brief statements that's really going to express some needful things to the Philippians. So the first was rejoice in the Lord always. The second was let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And now verse 6, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your request be made known to God. You know, the first thing that catches me about that verse, verse 6, is that it's a command. Be anxious for nothing. You know, that's a command, not an option. Undue care. When, When we take more cares, more concern, more stress upon ourselves than God wants us to, that is intruding into an arena that belongs to God alone. You know what it does? It sort of says to God... I'm the father in the household, and I'm not a child. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. You know, the, the, the children don't come to the parents and they say, you know, uh, Father, I'm really worried. Um, I don't know if we're going to have enough money to pay the telephone bill this month. And the electric bill kind of has me worried too, Dad. I, I don't know if I can sleep tonight because of these bills that are going to come due You know, at the household. Now, what, what would a father's reaction be? to a seven-year-old child who came to him with that kind of complaint. He would say, son, that's none of your business. I pay the bills in this home, and maybe things are tight. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but it's just none of your business. You're just supposed to trust me to take care of the telephone bill and the electric bill. It's just none of Why are you worrying about these things that you have no business worrying about? And that's what it is in our Christian life. When we take this undue care upon ourselves, God would say to us, be anxious for nothing. I'm your loving heavenly father. You don't need to worry about those things. No, no, no. Be anxious for nothing. I'm the father. You're in my household. Don't take the, the father's concerns upon yourself when you're a child in my household. Instead, what should our attitude be? It's not that we're to do nothing or we're to be anxious for nothing, but it's not as if we're to do nothing. We're supposed to do something. It says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What is the proper subject of prayer? Everything. Everything. I, tell you, I wonder if sometimes this isn't the most disobeyed exhortation in the Scriptures. Everything. Do you pray about everything in your life? I can't speak these words to you tonight without getting convicted in my own heart. This is a good sermon for me to preach to myself. What should I be praying about? Everything. No, I pray about things when they start going bad. I pray about things when you know it starts looking a little bit shaky, when I can't handle it by myself, when things are falling apart. That's not everything. He didn't say every bad thing. He said everything. It's really a wonderful arena for prayer. And so we say with every and everything by prayer and supplication. Those are two similar aspects of prayer. Prayer is sort of a broad word that refers to all of our communion with God. You know, when you worship God, when you're worshiping God, you're praying. When you're thanking God, you're praying. When you're listening to God, you're praying. When you're adoring God, you're praying. But supplication is a little bit different. Supplication is asking God for something, and that's part of prayer, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with asking God for something. It shouldn't be the totality of your communication with God, but it certainly is fine for it to be a part of it. So in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. I like the way he phrased that. Because if you think about it, doesn't God already know my needs? Doesn't he already know my requests? Well, he does. But he wants you to say them to him. God knows our requests before we pray them. Yet yet God will often wait for our participation through prayer before granting the things that we request. God wants to hear it from us. But I also like what he says there in verse 6, with thanksgiving. Oh, when you bring your requests to God, bring them with thanksgiving. You're not supposed to have a whining, complaining spirit before God when you let your requests be made known before Him. You, you, you really um, can get to the point where you're anxious for nothing, where you pray about everything and you're thankful for anything. That's where God wants us to be. And Look at the great promise that follows verse 6. Of course, it's right there in verse 7. He says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You see, that's a wonderful promise, isn't it? This this promise that if we'll pray the way that God wants us to pray... If we'll bring all of our needs to the Lord, all of our cares, if we'll cast them upon Jesus Christ, then what is our reward? What is our blessing from that? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The Bible describes three great aspects of peace that relate to God. First, there is what we might call peace from God. You know, Paul would often say this when he uh, introduced his letters. He would say, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us that peace comes to us as a gift from God. But there's not just peace from God, there's also peace with God. Now that's a very important peace to have, don't you think? To be at peace with God. And that describes the relationship that we enter into with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ until you've put your trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross to make you right with God, you're not at peace with God. Even if you're unaware of the disagreement, you're not at peace with God until you've made that peace with him. And then finally, going beyond the peace from God, going beyond the peace with God, there is what Paul mentions right here in verse 7. It's the peace of God. I want you to think about it. The peace of God is the kind of peace that God has. Now let me ask you, if you think of God enthroned in the heavenlies right now, surrounded by innumerable multitudes of angels that that worship Him around His throne, God, the sovereign of the universe, upon His throne, is God at peace? Or does He sit upon His throne saying, what am I going to do about that Mideast problem? You know, Oh, the price of oil. Oh, what's going to happen there? The course of this nation, elections, and then down to your life. you know, Am I ever going to be able to get that guy a, a girlfriend? You know, on and on. God wonders, and he's at peace. And Is that how it is for God? No. Look, if there is any being at complete peace in the universe, it's God as he sits on his throne. Now, this is the promise for us. We can have the peace of God. Spurgeon defined it like this. He defined God's peace as the unruffled serenity of the infinitely happy God, the eternal composure of the absolutely well-contented God. That kind of peace can be ours. And it is, as you would say here in verse 7, it is certainly the peace which passes all understanding. Now, it isn't that it's senseless, and impossible to explain or understand, but it's beyond our ability to understand. It's beyond our ability to explain. Therefore, this peace of God must be experienced. I can tell you about it, but it's nothing like you experiencing it. Now, I want you to notice, it doesn't just say that this surpasses the understanding of the worldly man, or the wicked man, it surpasses all understanding. Even the godly man cannot comprehend this peace. He can he can experience it, but I don't think he can comprehend it. And this peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, look at it again in verse 7, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The word guard there speaks of a military action. It's something that the peace of God does for us. It's a peace that is on guard over our hearts and minds. It keeps us in that strong secure place. Now, when you have that peace of mind, where do you put your mind? Look at it here, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Put your mind on those things. Now talk about having a mind full of peace and contentment. It matters where you put your mind, isn't it? You you have a choice. Don't think for a moment that you are in no control of your thoughts. That you can't direct where you put your mind. As the classic saying goes, you may not be able to keep uh, bad thoughts from flying over your head like the bird's, But you don't have to let the bad thoughts build a nest in your hair. And that's really the thought. You know, listen, bad or unproductive or or thoughts contrary to what Paul mentions here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Those thoughts may pass through your mind, but it's whether or not you choose to give them a landing place, whether or not you choose to think upon them. Too many Christians spend the time condemning themselves for ungodly or impure thoughts that go through their mind instead of just letting them go through and saying bye-bye and then putting their mind on something far better, far more productive. May I say, the things that are true, the things that are noble, the things that are just, the things that are pure, the things that are lovely, the things that are of good report, the things that are of virtue, and the things that are praiseworthy, those things to meditate on. I don't know, as you read that... do you get a little convicted about what you put your mind on? You know, maybe that same bitter argument runs through your mind over and over again. Maybe you think and you rehearse what you're going to say to that person to tell them off the next time you see them, and you rehearse that in your mind over and over again. Maybe it's a a thought born in, in impurity. Maybe it's a thought born in anger or bitterness. Maybe it's a thought born in greed or avarice. But you look at your mind and you say, you know, the mind can be a clearinghouse of all kind of evil. And what's the idea of it instead? Look, clear those things out and put your mind on the things that are noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report and of virtue and are praiseworthy. You see, Paul would say that That these things are the fruit and the food of the mind that is guarded by the peace of God. When we put these good things into our mind, they stay in our mind and then they'll flow forth from us. Wouldn't you expect noble actions to come forth from a person whose mind is put on things that are noble? Just actions, pure actions, lovely actions, good report. And we come back more and more again to understanding how we so often lose the battle in our Christian life. It's because we take no discipline over our minds, none whatsoever. We let our mind run and play over wherever we please, and then we wonder why the mind is like a disobedient child, and then we wonder why it acts so badly as well. No, instead, what were we to do at the very end of verse 8? He says, meditate on these things. It's really remarkable how much of the Christian life comes down to the mind. To the mind. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it speaks of the essential place of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, speaks of the importance of casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. What we choose to meditate on matters. And might I say, you're meditating on something. I'm looking out upon a room full of people who are into meditation. He thought, well, I never knew I was into meditation. Well, you're meditating on something. Your mind is on something. You know, even if it's just on you know, a, a candy bar or a donut, you're thinking about that. Your mind is filled with something. How important it is to, to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Now verse 9, He says, The things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. You have to really be impressed with the Apostle Paul. You know, he could say, Do as I do. I don't think Paul for a moment put himself up as being perfect. We saw earlier in the letter to the Philippians where Paul very much said, I haven't attained perfection. Nobody should think that I have. But at the same time, Paul could say, I know I'm going in the right direction. You can follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. And if they did as Paul had instructed, not only would they have the peace of God, but notice, the God of peace would also be with them. What a great little section of of exhortation that Paul gave them in the first nine verses of this chapter. Now, as we come into verse 10, we sort of get into a different section where Paul is going to speak to the Philippians about the financial support that they had been giving to him. Look at it right here, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. This paragraph here, verses 10 through 14. There's a lot here. There's a lot that tells us about Paul and his attitude regarding the giving of the Philippians. There's a lot in there that tells us about the Philippians and their attitude of giving towards Paul. Notice how Paul first described it in verse 10, where he says that your care for me has flourished again. This refers to the financial support that was brought to Paul by Epaphroditus. Mentioned in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, Paul didn't want to imply that the Philippians didn't care before, only that they lacked opportunity. They, they, they wanted to support Paul, but it was difficult to get the money to him. Let's face it, you know, back then they couldn't just transfer the money to his bank account. Back then they couldn't just wire the money over a telegram. Somebody had to physically carry the money to Paul and he was a long way away. And so finally, with the coming of Epaphroditus, they had the way to get a financial gift to the Apostle Paul as he sat in Roman custody, awaiting trial, and he received the gift. And right now, this is his thank you note. He says, thank you so much for the gift that you have sent to me. Your your, uh, generosity, your, your care for me has flourished once again because now you have the opportunity. But now look at what he says in verse 11. He says, not that I speak in regard to need. In other words, Paul's thankfulness to the Philippians was not because he was needy, although he did need it. But his real thankfulness was not that it was good for him to receive the gift, but that it was good for them to give it. Isn't that interesting? Look again, verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Paul's primary gratitude for their gift was not that it helped him. Because Paul said, I'm happy in whatever state I'm in. He made a very remarkable statement here. This is how Paul could say that his thankfulness was not based upon his own need. Even though Paul was in need, he was content where he was at, even in his Roman imprisonment. And so he says, you have to say it's an impressive statement, in verse 11, I have learned to be content. Paul had to learn contentment. You know, that's not natural to mankind. It is not natural to mankind to be content. We have to learn it. It's something that we learn in God's spiritual school. And Paul says very dramatically here in verse 12, I know how to be abased and I know how to be, excuse me, how to abound. Paul's contentment was not only theoretical, he actually lived it. Now, if you think of a very, very rich man and he says, you know, uh, I could live without all this. But it's all very theoretical to him, right? Because he has no intention of ever giving it up. And then you talk to a very, very poor man. And the very poor man says, well, you know, I could be happy poor or I could be happy rich. Well, he might never know, right? Because he might never be rich. Paul can say, I know both sides. I've had a lot. I've had nothing. And I know that I can be content in either situation. He had been financially well-off. He had been financially needy. Paul actually lived this. And Paul, listen, he knew how to be abased. I think it's remarkable how God allowed this great apostle to be humbled. You see, there he was. He, he, He was having almost nothing there, living on the generosity of other people there in the Roman prison, awaiting trial before Caesar, Paul knew how to get along with nothing. But Paul also knew how to abound. You know, there are many people who know how to be abased, but they don't know how to abound. They can't receive any kind of wealth, any kind of blessing from God without wasting it or without using it for sinful purposes. There are many people who have an easier time handling the trials of adversity than they do, having, than they do handling the trials of success. And Paul says, I've known the trials of adversity, I've known the trials of success, and I've been able to look to the Lord through all of them. No wonder he says here in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what? I think that's wonderful. It's a popularly quoted verse, isn't it? And It's a good verse. I hope you've memorized that verse. I hope it's one that comes to your mind quickly, sort of there in the repertoire of your thoughts where you can say I know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a wonderful verse, but don't forget the context. What were the all things that Paul could do through Christ who strengthens him? Well, he could be content in any circumstance. Isn't it funny? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can move mountains. You know, I can heal the sick. I can raise the dead. What, can you be content in whatever situation you have? No, I can't do that. Well, that's the strength Paul was talking about, wasn't it? The strength to be content in whatever circumstance God had put you in. Yeah, unfortunately, I think many people take this verse out of context and they use it to re- reinforce what I would call almost a super Christian mentality, that they can do whatever they want to do, whatever comes into their mind, instead of seeing that the strength of Jesus in Paul's life was evident in his ability to be content when he did suffer need. You know, one of my favorite things to do in thinking about this verse here, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I like to compare it with another verse, John fifteen five, For without me you can do nothing. Aren't those two great mottos for the Christian life? Without me you can do nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a great double bookend. You know, Put that at both ends of your Christian life and let everything be lived in the middle of those two ends. On the one hand, you can't do anything without him. On the other hand, with Christ, you can do all things who strengthens you. Well, he goes on and he explains in verse uh, 14. Nevertheless, you've done well in that you shared in my distress. You see, Paul didn't want the Philippians to think, well, wow, if he can be happy with nothing... Maybe we were wrong to send him the gift. Paul said, no, 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 that's it. You've done well. You did good. But what Paul wanted them to know was the good that they did wasn't so much for him, but it was good for them. Godly giving actually does more good for the giver than it does for the one who receives. Now You know, I know how the work of God is. I know that the work of God operates on money oftentimes, and it operates on the generous gifts of God's people. But I'll tell you what, the primary motivation for giving should not be, and I'll just use it sort of in a, you know, sort of crude or rough way of speaking, the primary reason for giving should not be because the church needs money. That shouldn't be it. The primary motive for giving should be because I need to be a giver. That's why you should give. Now listen, it is relevant that the church needs money. That's not something to be ignored. But that should not be the primary motivation for giving. The primary motivation should be, I need to give because I need to be a giver. And that's what Paul was trying to get across to them. He said, you've done well. Even though, Paul says, I didn't need the gift in the sense that I can be content without it, nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Your gift makes me a partner in my current trial, in my current ministry, and God will reward you for that. As he goes on here in verse 15, he says, Now you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia... No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all in abound, and I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that are sent from you, a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God." see, Paul is now thinking of the beginning of his missionary efforts uh, in Europe, those pioneering days that are described for us in Acts chapter 16 and following. And Paul says, you know, when I went forth into Europe and when I was doing my missionary work around there, no church supported me except for you Philippians. They were the only ones to support Paul during that particular period. And Paul especially remembered how they supported him when Paul was in Thessalonica. I think it's interesting because we sort of have the image from the Philippian church and some other passages that they were not a church that was rich. The Philippians didn't give to Paul because they just had money falling out of their pockets and, well, let's let some of it fall towards Paul. No, no, no. They gave out of their own need. The actual amount of the gift, if you added it up in the Roman coins in which it was given, it probably didn't add up to a whole lot. But to Paul, it was very precious because it showed that the Philippians really wanted to partner with him in the furtherance of the gospel. And so while Paul was working all around that area of Europe, they supported him. Surprisingly, even in Thessalonica, Paul had a good relationship with the Thessalonian church, but they didn't support him. Paul worked with his own hands in Thessalonica and he was supported by the Philippians. But I want you to notice especially what he says here in verse 17. To me, this is a key principle about giving. He says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Let's just say if if, uh, the the Philippians would have brought Paul a gift of a hundred Roman gold coins. And Paul goes, Wow, a hundred Roman gold coins. That's a lot of fruit to the account of the Philippians. That's how he thought. He thought, wow, God is really going to bless them for this great gift. You see, it wasn't the actual gift that was put into Paul's hands that brought him joy. No, it was the giving and the meaning of that giving. That was the real reality of his work. It showed him that God was really doing a work among the Philippian Christians. And their giving increased the fruit in their account before God. I tell you, I I think that's really a wonderful principle. It shows us the eternal value of giving. You have an account in heaven. You do. And you know what? One of the ways that you can add to your account in heaven is by using your resources, whatever God gives you right now, using it to God's glory. And that means you will build up a greater account in heaven. You get more and more. Might I say, that's one reason too, to wisely use the money that God gives you. Because you want to use it, as a good investor would, to build up your account in heaven. Put it in something that's going to bear a lot of fruit for God. And that fruit will abound to your account a matter of fact, it's like a sacrifice. If you look at it here at verse 18, he says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul described the gifts of the Philippians in terms that reminded us of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. You know what? I want you to think about it. The way that Christians are to give today is a lot like the way that they were to give in the Old Testament with sacrifices. You know, we think of it now, we think of the farmer bringing, you know, the bull before the Lord to be sacrificed. We think of the father bringing the the, the lamb, you know, the, the, the father of the family bringing the lamb for sacrifice to the temple. They bring it up. What we usually don't appreciate is that there was a sizable financial investment in bringing that bull before the Lord. That was a lot of money. That lamb that you sacrificed, that ram, that goat, whatever it was, livestock was your bread and butter. You were really laying down a sacrifice financially to the Lord to bring your animals before the Lord for sacrifice. And that's why Paul can relate New Testament giving to the idea of the Old Testament sacrifice. Now, verse 19. Here we come to this great, great, wonderful promise. He says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now the first thing I want you to do is you say, I recognize that verse, don't you? Haven't you heard that verse before? And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But let me ask you, have you ever understood it in its proper context? Have you ever understood it that Paul says it After, oh, about what? About nine verses talking about the giving of the Philippians. He's writing to the Philippian Christians who have been very generous in their gifts to him. And it's to them that Paul says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. Now, I want you to notice it shows that the Philippians had needs. I shouldn't think for a moment that the Philippians were just sort of wealthy benefactors of Paul who could easily spare the money. As a matter of fact, as Paul described the giving of the Philippians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it was very plain that their giving to him was sacrificial. This promise meant something to them because they were in need. I like what Spurgeon said about this. I'll quote him here. Paul said to the Philippians, You have helped me, but my God shall supply you. You have helped me in one of my needs, my need of clothing and of food, but in other needs which you have could not help me. But my God shall supply all your need. You have helped me, some of you, out of your deep poverty, taking from your scanty store, but my God shall supply all your need out of his riches and glory. That's how God provides. I want you to notice it's a great promise there. My God shall supply all your need. You have to take it all there. First of all, it's a broad promise, right? All your need. Whatever you need, God has promised to supply. Now might I say, let's remember who the promise is made to. I hope I'm not being too restrictive here. I pray that I'm not. But I want you to notice, this promise was made to Christians who were honoring God with their resources. This promise is made to Christians who were giving as they should. And it's to those that Paul said, my God shall supply all your need, all of it. Every need you have, God is going to supply it. But notice what he said, all your need. Not all your greed. My God shall supply all your greed according to his riches and glory. He didn't say that, did he? It's all your need. So it's great. It's a broad promise, but yet at the same time it's restricted But then again, look at how Paul makes it broad. And I mean really broad. Once again, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now that's a staggering measure of giving. You know, if I were to say, uh, okay, I'm going to supply your need according to the measure of a poor Bible college student. You'd say, well, thanks. You know, I'll go out and get a dooner. You know, maybe a kinder dooner, you know, and maybe I'll get the small one because that's about the measure of the need according to the the, the supply of that. But if I were to say, I am going to supply your need according to the measure of a fabulously wealthy uh, Middle Eastern oil sheik, you know, you'd say, all right, that's a much bigger measure, right? Well, what's the measure that God gives here for us in verse 19? According to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It's a pretty big measure. God's drawing from a pretty big bank, from a pretty big treasury. There's no shortage in it. Now, I think as we look at this, we can see that this verse is a great illustration of that miracle that we saw in 2 Kings chapter 4, where Elisha told the widow to gather the empty vessels. Do you remember that? Elisha told the widow to gather empty vessels and to pour from one small container of oil that she had, to gather all the empty vessels she could, and then she would pour from the small vessel of oil that she had and keep pouring and pouring and pouring, and she miraculously poured from that one vessel and filled all the empty vessels. And you could say, all your need... That's like the empty vessels, right? There's the empty vessels out before God. And then God is the one who's going to fill the empty vessels. And then how is he going to fill it? He's going to fill it according to his riches and glory. Every one of those vessels is going to be filled up to the brim because that's how much God gives. And then how is he going to do it? if you want to make the spiritual analogy carry through, those vessels were filled with oil, but what God fills us with is with Jesus Christ. That's how God meets our needs. Our empty vessels are filled with Jesus in all His glory. And then we're filled. And so this is a remarkable and a wonderful promise. I just wonder, sincerely wonder, this promise is not taken out of context in the hearts of many Christians. And they take it as sort of a you know, blanket promise that's made to any Christian, no matter what they're doing with their own material resources. I think in some ways, this promise simply expresses what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Let me read that to you. Listen carefully. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Well, listen, the Philippians gave unto Paul, and Paul was fully confident that God would provide for all of their needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Well, now, as we come to verse 20, we come to the last few verses of the book where he says, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, this wasn't an unthinking comment by Paul. Paul isn't just saying, well, I got to think of a few spiritual things to write at the end of the letter. No, no, no. Paul meant this in a very sincere way. He genuinely wanted God to be glorified, and he was willing to be used in whatever way God saw fit to glorify himself. You know, when Paul is saying now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever, he's thinking, may God be glorified by my life if I get out of this prison. May God be glorified by my death if I never make it out. But one way or another, let God be glorified. Then he says in verses 21 and 22, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. I think it's interesting. Paul did not here give specific greetings to individuals as he does in other letters. You know, in some of Paul's other letters, at the end of the letter, he's giving many specific directions to individuals. You know, greet this person at this house and this person who I've known before and say this to that person and say this to the other person. There's really very little of that in this letter to the Philippians. But what he does say is he says, greet every saint. Maybe Paul didn't want to single somebody. He was afraid he might forget some people. So he just says, greet them all for me. What did he say? Every saint. That means everybody in the church there. We're reminded again that the title of saint in the New Testament context, it belongs to every believer. Every believer is a saint. Every believer is one of God's holy ones. But there were some special saints that Paul did want to greet. Those who are of Caesar's household. That's who Paul wanted to send a greeting on behalf of you. Excuse me, on behalf of. All the saints greet you, verse twenty two, but especially those of Caesar's household. You know, the way we have it today is you'd have a group of Christians, you know, standing, you know, together and they'd take a picture and they say, Hi, and this would be Hi from the Christians in Caesar's household. You know, and there you would see some servants. Maybe you'd see some of, some of Caesar's family members. Maybe you'd see some people all gathered around at one of the Bible studies that they've had. And there'd be a nice picture of all these people from Caesar's household who were believers and they wanted to send a greeting to all the Christians there in Philippi. Isn't that remarkable? Doesn't it show you how mightily God was using Paul in Rome? God was using Paul in Rome to reach people even within the household of Caesar. Therefore, Paul couldn't say, well, I'm wasting time in jail here. Well, I'm wasting time until I go on trial and I'm able to speak to Caesar directly. Paul knew that God was using him and he knew that God was using him because some people, even in Caesar's household, were coming to salvation. And then finally, the last verse of the book, verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You know, again, we can say that Paul wasn't just filling up space at the end of the letter. Paul knew that the Christian life began and ended with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it was very important that his letters began with grace and they ended with grace. And he gives a very fitting word of affirmation at the end where he says, Amen. He knew that everything he wrote to the Philippians was fitting to be agreed with. So I think we see some remarkable things in this final chapter of the letter to the Philippians. First of all, we see Paul's very impassioned appeal to these two women to get along and to get along on the basis of this common faith, this common mind that they should have together in Jesus Christ. And also, might I say, the common joy that they should have and the kind of joy that should be guarding the mind and and the, the meditation that should be guarding the mind of every believer in Jesus Christ. Then he addressed the Philippians in this very tender way regarding their generosity to him, assuring them that God would bless them and provide for their needs because they had been so generous to him. And then finally, he ends the letter with a word of greeting. The words of greeting are important. You know what it shows? So Paul was not a cold dispenser of doctrine. When he wrote the Philippians, he didn't just think of a bunch of people who needed to be taught a bunch of things. He thought of his friends. He thought of people there that he knew and he loved. That's the way it should be for us too. The people that God puts into our lives. The people that we have the privilege to maybe bring some ministry to in the name of Jesus Christ. They they, they shouldn't just be names. They shouldn't just be faces. They should be people that we love and have a deep affection for in Jesus Christ. It was that way with Paul. And in few letters of the New Testament does that shine through more clearly than in this wonderfully warm letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. Well, let's pray and thank the Lord for it. We thank you, Lord, for your inspired word, for how it speaks to us across the centuries. We, we fully recognize, Lord, that this letter was written by Paul to the Philippians some 2,000 years ago, Lord, and yet it speaks to us today with a remarkable freshness, with a remarkable wonder, and we're so grateful for it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for how you speak to us. Thank you for how you love us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to renew our hearts and minds before you. That we would think the way you want us to think. Use your word in our life to help accomplish that. We pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.